listening to an episode from our Design Thinking Season, a series of conversations with people talking about their ideas and experiences with the design thinking process, universal design and inclusive design. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kian, And I am Monica. And we're talking with Lorcan O'Keefe of Hands-On Performance. You're very welcome to the podcast, Lorcan. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, thanks for inviting me. Um, I am the co-founder and CEO of Hands-On Performance and currently the sole proprietor of O'Keefe Design. Um, And both companies are rooted in motorsport, so you expect that I've been involved in motorsport all my life or I've come from motorsport background. Absolutely not. Um, My reality couldn't have been further from motorsport. So I grew up on a dairy farm where my family were all involved heavily in horses and still are to this day. Um, One key factor, however, of my upbringing would instill a methodology that would serve me very well in my design career, uh, which came much later. So on a farm, if something breaks, you have to fix it. If something needs to be made, you make it. And you do that with whatever you have to hand. So I was taught at a very early age to weld and always encouraged to learn how to fix um, anything that needed to be fixed. So I'm sure my dad had much more practical ambition for these skills. And don't get me wrong, farm machinery is cool and all, but cars are much faster. Um, So that's where I concentrated my efforts. I studied automotive technology in DIT and I've been involved in the automotive industry for the entirety of my my working life. Um, Working in the industry in various roles did give me great insight into its inner workings. It taught me sales, negotiations, and high-value purchasing agreements, and it did allow me to scrape enough money together to scratch that itch of getting into racing. Um, I managed to start racing with Formula V in 2012 in Mondello Park, Admittedly, I wasn't very competitive, but I I really caught the bug, Um, not only for the racing, but for the setup of the cars and the problem solving that came um, with improving myself and the car. So in 2016, um, 10 years in total in in the automotive industry, I had enough of my day job and decided to pursue my passion of design and innovation. I contacted Mr. John O'Leary, who provides parametric design classes in the Wexford-Waterford Education and Training Board. Um, John really opened my eyes to the possibilities and opportunities that modern CAD software could provide. So fast forward to 2019, I started O'Keefe Design. I began designing for motorsport, which led to doing some sim hardware design work for digital motorsports. I think you've had nylon here before. Um, which led to some great opportunities, one of which was a trip to Poland um, last September for a rapid prototyping mission, um, closely followed by a week in the Nürburgring in Germany for a trade expo, the ADAC Sim Expo. Um, So in 2020, the design work for hands-on performance began. Um, This was in terms of prototyping and some design validation which brings us to now where the company is set to launch its first product within the coming months. That's some some start even before 2020, even before hands-on performance. Yeah. That's (laughs) amazing. Uh, What's your vision for both O'Keefe Design and hands-on performance? Um, Well, O'Keefe Design was established as an R&D company. 
Um, so most of what comes of that will be unseen in terms of O'Keefe design products, um, meaning that they will be most likely exist as companies uh, which will spin out of O'Keefe Design are products developed by us for separate enterprises. At hands-on performance, um, from a commerce standpoint, we design, develop and engineer driving controls for wheelchair users and differently abled consumers in the driving and racing simulator industry. Um, we are focused on providing products for people who require a different set of tools to drive um, and for whom current standard technology offerings just don't work. Um, so in, in motorsport, success is measured in time. It's not measured in your ability to use foot pedals. Um, at this point, as a founder, I'm supposed to get all virtuous and tell you how we're going to change the world's perception of people with disabilities. Um, matter of fact, we just provide the tools. Um, the world of motorsport will be changed by the individuals who use our tools um, and show what they can do. Could you give us a brief intro to eSports, sim sports, or racing simulators? Yeah, so sim racing has existed probably since the late 80s, early 90s. Um, the difference is now that the technology required to make the hardware feel realistic and the computing power needed is more widely available and cheaper. I'd say most of you have laptops here that could run a fairly high level rig now. Um, it was only inevitable that a massive industry would grow, grow out of this. Um, and it's really a credit to companies like Digital Motorsport who have helped popularise the sporting element and highlight the training for the motorsport use case. Um, which has changed its perception from a gaming industry to a serious sports industry. The pandemic has accelerated mainstream adoption. Um, since most countries had to pause any real-world competition and track time, we saw competitors' hunger didn't really waver and competition simply went online. Um, the social media platforms like Twitch, which have supported the gaming, gaming industry, also gained some high-level validation from the very sharp end of motorsport. And although drivers such as Lando Norris and current championship contender Charles Leclerc and current world champion Max Verstappen um, already had, were active on these platforms, um, F1's participation in SimSport highlighted this to the mainstream, which were previously slow, very slow to adapt. Um, this led to an influx of streamers and influencers into sim racing. Yes, that's great. Having guys high level people like Landon Norris and Verstappen, yeah, really helps it, it really does help to get it. Yeah, out that's there. amazing though. Um, so, why do you put so much attention on replicating road cars and motorsport controls in a sim sports driving rig? So personally, it's fun. That's good <laughs> End answer. Up. No, so as a designer, um, this is a new market and a challenge to create, create, design, and implement solutions in a field that I'm passionate about. Um, the products I'm designing for hands-on performance open a market for open this market for people with disabilities. Um, it opens up new experiences, passions, and opportunities to them. Um, therefore, it's crucial for me to that the designs replicate real-world control of the cars through our adaptive hand controls. Um, in general, sim users want realism. Um, and they're looking for an accurate representation of the car that they are driving, whether that's for real-world training, for sim racing, or simply because they want to drive a Ferrari in the LA Canyons. 
Um, so I would feel that it's our responsibility to give those people cl- as close to a replica of road or motorsports controls as possible. And with the technology available to us and to, to investigate um, solutions which will close that gap even further. But the reality of today's world and, and as always was the, most people will never get the opportunity to drive these cars in real life let alone throw them around the track. Um, so I think it's important that we open this opportunity to everyone. Um, that sounds amazing. Uh, can we talk a bit about who was your inspiration? Yeah, so um, in business and as students of business, the who question is usually teased out as a buyer persona. Um, in motorsports, a little bit different. Well, I like to approach it in a little bit different anyway um, and deal with base principles. So for the functionality portion of a product, um, at least we would look at, at base principles. For the desirability of factor of a product, we can ha- that can be helped um, and teased out with a buyer persona. But again, that in motorsport usually boils down to a product which looks and feels like it will stand up to the rigours um, of use in a race car um, obviously a few design cues and nods to race car equipment does help this um, but this baseline really helps when designing for accessibility in motorsport because ultimately you're designing with a strict guideline on how the product needs to work um, I started with that functionality um, I, it needs to have an accelerator, a brake it needs to change gears, it needs a clutch and it needs a handbrake for rally or drifting. Um, We also needed to understand that in rally and drift, you would need to rapidly change the steering direction. And in the case of drifting, actually flick the steering while um, in transition. So when you're flicking from one side to the other. Um, In these cases, you would need to make sure that you have full control of all these factors at one time. Now imagine that you don't have the use of your legs. So how do you do that? So you kind of take all of these factors and you build up a solution from that. Um, I managed to get a few solutions together and had it tested by a guy called Patrick Croak. Um, Now, Paddy has cerebral palsy and he's not one for letting his disability hold him back um, from his passions. He comes from a long lineage of rally drivers and has adopted and overcome any challenges he has faced. In fact, Paddy has a complete disregard for the word can't and that in itself has been an inspiration for me and, and the design work. Um, he's currently Ireland's only competition license holder who uses a wheelchair. And with his help, we teased out different hand control solutions through testing and development. Um, his feedback was crucial to us and we benefited greatly from this. Um, so, so this way, I suppose, as you would call it, would be user led design. Um, because we don't, and anyone in this room, we don't have the understanding of his needs or requirements. We only have assumptions. Um, So anyone who is going into business needs to have an understanding of their customer's needs. I think that is paramount for designing for accessibility because you you have not lived these people's experiences. Um, And I'm very pleased to say that Paddy has trusted us to develop a real-world version of our controls for his rally sprint car, 
which will, for us, it'll solidify even further the fact that the simulator controls are an accurate representation of what's used in the real-world motorsport. And if any, anyone who's listening who's, who would have an interest, I would encourage you to follow Paddy's story. He's set up a, a, a Facebook page. It's called Whack on Tour. It was W-A-C-K on Tour. You'll have to ask him the, <laughs> the background of that one. It's probably too long to get into it. Jeez, you already sound like you have a great grasp in terms of what sort of design is necessary for, for people who are disabled in some way or disadvantaged in some way, which is then what are your ultimate design goals if, like for, for hands-on performance and, and for O'Keefe Design as well? Um, well, our design goals simply are that they'll work. <laughs> I think it's a simple goal to to get to. So in in terms of maybe in, um, a, 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 a simulator rig, um, whether that be a general purpose or, or a platform that can be configured um, to suit as many people as, as possible. So initially, we will provide products complementary to any sim rig. Um, so most people would set up their rig to suit their preferred seating position. Um, and that is very subjective. We do have some designs for sim rigs at present, and once it's feasible for the company to commercialize these, we will do. Um, it's also beneficial for us to gain feedback from the users of our controls before we finalize any designs. So going back to what I said, it needs to work, so we need to just put it out there, test the market, see what they need. I mean, we're opening the market to 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 a lot of people, and ultimately we need to follow and innovate at the same time um, using their help. Um, so these will be configurable platforms where the end user can set up their seat as they prefer it. Ultimately, the rig itself is just a starting point. Um, the customer will configure their own rig um, with their own favorite type of seat, their own seating position. They will upgrade their equipment as their interest grows. So our platform can grow with the user's interests and experiences. It will remain adaptable and upgradable throughout the product lifecycle. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, this should be the, your favorite seat in the house. So how you configure it is, is it's very subjective. So we just kind of, we need to, we don't want to go down one route and this is the product and either use it or not. We, you know, it needs to grow with them. Um, that sounds like a really complex but well thought out design. Um, could we talk a little bit about what is your own design process? I've, I've, I have reflected on design process. Well, I've tried. Um, and I think that every time I've come up with a different answer. But to, to be a good designer, you need to be quite malleable in your process. So there will always be a balance between functionality, aesthetics, cost and manufacturability. Um, user-led design, as I mentioned, I'll always try to implement this in any design going forward. Um, but it is important that you just don't follow the instructions of whoever you're designing for. Um, you can't be afraid to push the boundaries here, um, but also validate your designs with every iteration. Um, you have to ensure that you don't go down a route that with, that won't work and you've gone too far. You kind of need it every step. You need to validate what you're doing will work. 
Um, I've always liked to iterate to the point where I under-promise and over-deliver. Um, this may cost me time and money, so working to a budget is always a concern. Um, that has to be considered in the process, but I think you're always you're always learning that as you go along. Um, on the other hand, further iterations are sometimes needed to make the end product more desirable um, while becoming easier and therefore cheaper to manufacture. Um, striking a balance between these is, is ever-evolving, as I said. Um, so the design process is almost subjective to each design that you approach. Um, understanding the manufacturing process is imperative to the design process. You need to have to go, have a good understanding of how the product would be made with which materials um, in the business that we're in, since most of our designs will need to withstand quite a lot of abuse in the, the heat of battle, you say, when we're racing. Um, so as, just on that point, as we say in sim sports, the cars may not be real, but the racing certainly is. Obviously, I keep design and hands-on performance are relatively new companies. Um, so as an entrepreneur and as an early stage startup, what are the most valuable sports out there? Like are they Enterprise Ireland or something like that? What sort of sports have you availed of? Um, yeah, so there, there, there are many sports out there, um, depending on what stage in the journey you're in. Um, if you need problems to solve, simply getting out there and becoming involved in the industry um, that you're in, interested in. Um, even online communities. Um, this way you can become aware of the needs of potential customers. Um, make yourself available to people. Um, this is where you get the opportunities. So if you're available for someone to help someone in whatever way, even if you don't know how you're going to do that, figure it out. <laughs> you know? um, for me, I sought like-minded individuals in motorsport for whom I could help on their journey. Um, this opened up a lot of opportunities to get started and ultimately to build on the opportunity for hands-on performance. Um, once I knew where I needed to go with the business, I needed to learn the best routes to take and what support I needed to lean on to make it a success. So you're, uh, to just to say in your question at the point, at that time, I didn't know what supports I needed. Um, and for me, New Frontiers program in WIT, that has been a godsend. Um, so that is an Enterprise Ireland um, program. Um, they ensure that you have as much information and guidance to make your startup competitive. They develop the key skills required to help your idea into reality and provide you with workshops and mentors who point out and help you navigate all those pitfalls and many startups will fall into. Um, I think without them, I'd still be doing a lot of head scratching. So you're you're learning from other people's experiences, you know, so you don't make their mistakes. Um, what tips would you give to someone starting down this road, taking an idea from concept to initial prototype? Um, for me, this was done by learning how to design and 3D print. Um, I think I found it easier to design things rather than, than explaining them to a designer. Um, I took that route because creating the thing the way I wanted it to be created was the fun bit. Uh, if you want to skip this process and start with building your concept on paper and just work from there, 
Um, there are plenty of people out there who create some physical starting point for your for your own concept. I mean, here in UCD, you have access to a very capable technology center. Um, for me, locally in Wexford, I had access to the WWETB Fab Lab. Again, John O'Leary, as I mentioned before. Um, they could, if I had gone up there with an idea, they could 3D print that concept for me if I needed um, and really, 3D printing has hit the mainstream at this point. Um, you may even know someone who has one or has access to one. Um, it doesn't have to look pretty. It just needs to kind of work um, so that you can test the concept with a group of people who you're trying to cater for um, with your solution. So we started with Paddy um with a a very kind of rough and ready, like in, in truth, and I don't mind saying it to you, I used um, parts that I just 3D printed a base. I found a stainless steel bar. I put a trigger on it. I put two load cells into it so that it would accelerate and it would break. And we got it working. We got it running on a simulator and we tried it out and it worked and we kind of went from there. Um, so... Just on that, you, you remember just by making a prototype, don't worry what it looks like. Um, just make it work, and you most likely make more iterations from there anyway um, before it's ready for sale. But it's important not to go down the road of endless prototypes. Um, that can be very easy to do, and I'd say if I hadn't gone down the route of New Frontiers, I'd still be making prototypes. Um, yeah, you need to know when good enough is good enough. Do you mind what your competitors are doing in terms of do you look at what they're doing or are you more focused on the service you're providing for the people you're trying to cater for? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you like to get a feel for the market and see what's going out there. Um, ultimately, I don't really worry about it. Um, often, like, there's a lot of, it could be a lot of concentrate. So in sim racing, there's, there's nearly an endless amount of steering wheels that you can buy out there. Um, and I had we had kind of considered going down that route of making a steering wheel better than all the other steering wheels. But I mean, what's the point when you can just innovate and make something new that and and, and start from there? Um, and I think for, for the likes of a startup, it's nearly better to start that way. It's very easy to get buried and ignored when, because, because ultimately when, when you're starting out, your product is going to be a little bit more expensive than someone who can get stuff made in China and, and shipped over in the thousands, you know. Um, so taking into consideration what you just said, um, so say for designing a steering wheel, would you start from saying what's available out there and how it could be improved, or would you start from scratch an absolutely zero level and just build it up from there? Yeah, I had battled with that one myself before. Um, and I think I spent about a week looking at what was out there and I think when you go down that route, you try to make small improvements on what's there. Whereas if you just scrap the lot, start with what you think is right and work from there, it's much easier to come up with something that none of them have ever thought about. I mean, it's like the, if you go back to the, I don't know if any of you remember the old ads for Gillette, when they would just keep adding a razor. I mean, at, at what's the point, you know, <laughs> it's just a razor or one more razor on it when you could, when you could kind of just change the game a little bit and really make a name for yourself. Yeah. So like, uh, for other 
products getting close to someone else's product how, how do you navigate that sort of situation that's tricky um so far like the, there is there is a lot of we would say replica parts here because in 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 sim racing so if you consider like um an lmp3 car or a Le Mans car um a lot of people would like to be able to to have something like that um and obviously Cosworth make those steering wheels and they're 20 grand plus per steering wheel so no one's going to go and put one of those on their sim simulator at home so they will copy them um that's a dangerous route to go down and i just it's not worth considering really yeah i think it's better to make something from your from yourself um from my own perspective with intellectual property obviously we will be um going down that route with hands-on performance and we haven't we haven't put a lot out there yet um simply for that reason because it can be it can be replicated quite quite quickly um so we will wait till we have something in place before we kind of really hit the market and make sure it's it's quality that there's that there's kind of copyright on your designs that that no one's going to just rip your thing and and, and go with it i mean it's it's quite easy for a lot of big companies to kind of sidestep ip um especially if it's for if for mechanical inputs they can just change the way it does the same thing you know so it's it, it is it is tricky and you kind of really need to just you need to talk to someone who's who's been in those trenches before before you kind of just make assumptions and get out there you know and and for those products which you will release hopefully down the line would you be looking for a patent or would you be looking for yeah um yeah just even to protect the designs initially um i know the like patents can become very expensive um as they as they go down the line um they're cheap enough initially but kind of keeping a retention on those patents can be can be quite uh, expensive um so we'll be we'll be assessing the risk as we go along really um Sometimes if you can establish yourself in the market as the leader, not many people are going to attempt to rip you off. Um, that's, well, I know that, that it, it can happen and it probably will happen, but we're just going to have to keep a foot of it at the time. Well, we'll wrap up here. Thanks for sharing your thoughts and experiences today. It was really interesting. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. See the description for links, credits and license information.